Let's go to God's word. Can y'all stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? We're in Romans chapter 8. Verses 28 through the end of the chapter. Get ready for some of the richest Bible two minutes you could ever experience. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Word of God. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your Word. Many of us are suffering various trials today and you want us to be healed of the suffering, but more than that, you want us to see something greater than it, than the things that we go through. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would supernaturally grant beyond my words overwhelming ability to see our conquering in all these things. I trust you. Amen. Welcome again to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. We are in our eighth and final week of our series, The Apostles' Creed. Uh, Since the third century, this creed has been used to secure the growth of the church of the living God and to articulate the truth of Scripture since the very beginning almost. So let's read together the entire creed, and uh, I'll go back and teach on the last part of it, tying it into our main passage. So let's read together from the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, 
our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, as I preach about the last part of that creed, starting with the forgiveness of sins, and I think actually our passage gives us an, a, an amazing surety about the one who forgives our sins is the one who surely produces the same resurrection that he went through for us and life everlasting. Our passage is going to take us through that. Now, I'm going to ask you, if you have your own paper Bible on you, to follow along with me, because a lot of the bold things I'm going to say are pretty much already said. It's just applying this amazing truth to our anxieties is something that requires boldness from the Holy Spirit by preachers and by listeners. Amen? So let it preach to you. And when you go away from today and you're saying, I don't know about that, Pastor Peter, that's okay. Just go back to it on your own. So you can scroll down to it or read down to it in a paper Bible. But follow along with me as we go back through our passage and I teach through it. I have one big idea that I feel articulates our passage. And it's this. Only through the lens of God's glory can we see all things rightly. Only through the lens of God's glory can we see all things rightly. So let's walk through this passage. Very first verse of our passage, verse 28, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and rightly so. And we know that for those who love God, all things, everyone say all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's stop there for a second. As I unpack our passage and uh, really draw into my big idea, I have a few questions as I go. And the first question is this. What are all things? What's Paul talking about here? What are all things? Are they good things? Are they bad things? Are they tough things? Well, let's start with what all things are not. When he says, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, based on the context, you would think that that means like, like not good things, right? All, all things are not good things. So not all things are good. That's a real simple truth that we can know from this. Not all things are good, but God can use all not good things for good. That's a really important distinction for us to know the character of our God. Not all things are good. Suffering is not good inherently. I don't see a good healthy context for Christians to pray for more suffering. I actually don't see that as a biblical prayer. 
I don't think there's ever a case where Christians should do anything but pray for healing when there's sickness. Suffering is not good. And not all things are good. But God uses these things for his purposes, it says. Now here's the tension. We can have a confidence in God and a healthy theology, which means like a good system of thought biblically, a healthy theology about suffering and about healing at the same time. In my experience, usually one of these two things people kind of leave behind. Like, okay, I'm all about healing, but suffering's bad. I'm afraid of it. I have to use Christian words to kind of minimize it. And they glorify healing and like, let's try to minimize suffering. Or the other is done. Where it's like, I've known people that glorify suffering and they're just constantly, all they talk about is the things that they're going through. And it's like, Jesus is never mentioned in the midst of it. It's just all about my problems. And so you're glorifying suffering and not understanding God's heart for healing. My argument is that both are necessary. I think we can have a healthy theology for suffering and for healing, and that we can glorify God in all things, whether in the middle of suffering or healing. Now, right before this in the context, Paul says, we don't know how to pray, and we need the Spirit to help us intercede. The context is actually like, we don't know if it's like time for, for me to, to go on to heaven and die, or if I'm supposed to keep suffering in the body, and I'm supposed to go visit you guys out in Rome, then go to Spain. We don't know how to pray. Do you guys ever feel that way? Like, in life, I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to pray right now. We, we don't know. Are we supposed to pray for the bad things to go away right now? Or are we supposed to pray, God, like bad things are cool right now, but like make good stuff happen in the middle of it. The point is this, we don't know. But that's why our verse, which is so wonderful, starts out with these words, and we know. In the context of what we don't know about what God's doing, we don't see what he sees, here's what we do know. We do know that he is working something good out of these things. Not all things are good, but God is. Verse 32 says all things again. He who did not spare his own perfect son, how will he not also with him grant us graciously all things? So my first read, I was like, okay, verse 28, you know, he works all things, like the bad stuff for our good. But then later, like, you know, down to verse 32, if you kind of stick with it, he's going to graciously grant you all things. And, and I was thinking, you know, that means all the good stuff, right? Until you read on, and the gracious things he's granting us, uh, there's distress, peril, persecution, danger, sword, having your head chopped off, slaughtered like a sacrificial lamb. These are the gracious things that God grants us. Can anybody say amen? <laughs> Dare you to say it. You can trust God. The rest of Paul's writings seem to underline that all things, stick with me here, really means all things. All things means all things. Romans eleven twenty six: From him, to him, through him, Jesus, all things. But all things also means especially hard things. Ephesians 1, Paul writes from a prison that he 
was not justly in. It wasn't fair. And he writes this, All has been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. This is a parallel verse for our main verse, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 3.21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Don't see your things in context of only your life, but see all things in context of what Jesus has done, is doing in Jesus and in those who belong to Jesus. Verse 28, therefore, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I want to confess something kind of embarrassing. I've been doing ministry for almost 15 years. For almost a decade, I would counsel people to not share this verse. Verse 28. With people in the middle of their suffering if they couldn't do it with the utmost of sensitivity and wisdom. Like many things in my life, I disagree with my former self. What my reluctance to share this verse with people showed was less about my superior sensitivity and wisdom, and it said more about how little I was grasping about and trusting in the deep truths of this scripture. And in fact, if I were to admit to you, and I am right now, I will admit that when I look back on it, actually, I was seeing through a lens of worldliness. Meaning, when I told people, don't share this you know, cavalierly with people, wait until you're perfectly sensitive, right? So don't share that all things work for people's good if they love God, because you know, they're really suffering. What I what I really believe probably was that the greatest good for these people was that their suffering would stop and they'd be, you know, comfortable again. Here's the problem with that. I was saying don't share eternal hope with someone who you come across unless it's done sensitively and wisely in a temporal sense. And without realizing it, I was implying that my kindness and my sensitivity is better than God's hope. There's no context where this truth is not appropriate, where it's not life-giving, where it's not better than what you're feeling. There's no context. Now, by all means, don't be a jerk. But if you were to choose between a jerk with eternal hope, which we don't have to choose, by the way, if you were to choose between that versus someone that has, is so grounded in eternal hope that nothing can take away from my confidence and I'm a little bit insensitive, go with the second. But I'm going to argue that the more you're grounded in the eternal hope of God, the more wisdom you'll have from God to minister to that, peop- that to people here today. It's most important for us to see through the lens of God's glory and and to see all things through that lens and to add to that kindness and gentleness. The Holy Spirit's good at helping us with that. It's the fruit of His Spirit. Only through the lens of God's glory can we see 
all things rightly. So to answer question one, all things means all things, especially hard things. Now, second question about this that I think our text answers, what's the right lens? How, how do I know I have the right framework for seeing the tough things that I'm going through? Anyone else going through any tough things at all? Uh, I know the answer to that question because I've actually not been surprised by the amount of things I've seen people suffering this week in this very church, which has really served to affirm what God's doing. But how do I see it rightly? What's the right framework to process all of this? What's the grid I'm supposed to look through? This text makes it clear. Verse 28 does not say, say all things work together for good. It says all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I understand people might like stop there and, and then, okay, what's his purpose? Let's just kind of attach our own meaning to that. Well, the text doesn't let us do that. The text makes it very clear through the next verse what his purpose is in your life and your suffering and all of world history, okay? So we should listen. God calls those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's great purpose with everything in life and with the whole world is to make people like Jesus. God is into filling the earth with God, with his love, with his purity, with his justice, with his holiness, with his enjoyment, with his laughter, with who he is. And therefore, God wants to make you like Jesus. And God is willing and even planning on you going through things like what Jesus went through in order to make you like Jesus. And even if you don't understand each particularity of what you suffer, if we can have the grand lens of what he's doing in all of world history, then in right context, we can see our sufferings and laugh at our future and silence the voice of the devil with authority, with wisdom, with anointing, and you need to know that God is the one at work in all of this. The next verse goes on. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. You see, there's a clear and consistent subject grammatically, if any of y'all are grammar geeks like me. There's one subject. It's him. He's the one at work in it. He starts. He finishes. Do you notice in verse 30, the word some? It's because it's not there. Those he calls out, he will have his will in their lives. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident in this. In the middle of his suffering, Paul says, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you wants you to try really hard to make sure it's seen through to completion. No, he doesn't say that. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. 
And he'll use all things at his disposal because he loves you. The whole verse, all here, it doesn't, this passage doesn't say anything about God offering salvation to everyone. This passage in the Bible is not about Jesus offering salvation to everyone. It's about so much more than an offer. Jesus is the one who performs. He starts it and he sees it through to completion. If we use our energy to be amazed at what Jesus is doing, rather than doubting ourselves and thinking it's humility and thinking it's, oh, we're buffeting ourselves. But if we put our confidence in God and we use our energy that we were doubting ourselves to earnestly desire more of his presence and more of his gifting, more of his anointing and seeking after his miracles with confidence and speaking to our suffering and putting it in its place. If we have confidence in what he began, he who did this also does this and he doesn't let anyone miss it. In God's kingdom, there are no dropouts. When he starts something, he finishes it. Grammatically, everything leading up until verse 31, our next verse, is all about the lens of what God is doing. The very next, the only time it changes grammatically, the subject is verse 31. Check this out. It's to point the finger back at us. To say, okay, if God's doing all this, it points back at our doubts and our fears. So ready to have your doubts and fears get picked on. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? It takes so much self-control not to sing this song right now. Oh, Lord, help me. If our God is for us. Oh, (laughs) Oh, you feeling that? Who can be against us? No one? All right, no one. There's a lot of songs in here. You guys can just be thankful that I'm not singing more, all right? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It insults God to think otherwise. If we boast in how big he is and we see our suffering as a a subordinate, something real small compared to his plan that cannot be snatched from us, then he is in the place he deserves in our life and all of our suffering is being used rightly. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now remember this dude, Three times, no, five times, he was slashed with these lashes that ripped open his back. He was whipped 39 times. Three times, he was beaten with rods. Once, he was stoned and left for dead. And dude's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? I'm thinking, like, if I'm in Rome, I'm like, Paul, what are you smoking, dude? A lot of people are against you. But what he's saying is no one can successfully be against us. God is the one who forgives and God is the one who causes us to be preserved. And anyone who would stand against us, they're just pawns in God's plan. So curse me, hurt me, 
all you can do is, you know, the worst of it, he says here, all you can do is kill me. And you're just punching a ticket to paradise for me. Because what God is doing is sure. Nothing you can do can actually successfully be against me. Can't thwart God's plan. Gets back to verse 32, our next verse, to the primary subject, the person in charge of history. Verse 32, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Next time here, it changes the subject to someone else other than God, is to silence not our fears and our doubts, but to silence the voice of our accuser. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So what's the right lens of seeing all things and seeing your suffering and your struggles? It's, it's knowing that ultimately God is in charge of your life. God is at work in this. And all things are being used to draw you closer to him and to make you like Jesus. It's the month of Ramadan right now. Some of you all know that our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations right now are undergoing worse torture than in other parts of the year. Uh, In China, there's extreme persecution. I want to admit to you that sometimes I fight anxiety when I'm thinking about our brothers and sisters in other countries, and it's actually not what you might think. I fight anxiety actually for this reason, because I know there's so much richer than me. That God is making them more like Jesus and because they have more struggles and I have so many nice things and I'm a pretty wealthy man like most of us that call ourselves Americans, my anxiety comes from the fact that God, I want to make sure I'm not missing out on any of the richness that I can have for all eternity and on earth just for a few breaths. I want it all. I don't want to worry about the same things that I was worrying about five years ago. And the peace that God gives me that he'll never take away from me is that he allows me to suffer even here and struggle with things even here. Does that mean God's the author of all these things? I don't know. You judge for that. But I know that God uses all things to make me more like Jesus. And if you ever suffer anything, you should be affirmed that you're not outside of God's plan. That he hasn't given up on you. He has not turned his back on you. He hasn't moved and said, well, this one's too lazy and too, too into money and whatever else and other worldly things and I'm gonna move on to the next nation. No, no, if you suffer anything, Can anybody say amen? Then God is for you and wants to make you more like Jesus. Only through the lens of God's glory can we see all things rightly. We so desperately need a a better lens for our suffering, for our struggles, for our triumphs. We need a way better lens. 
It's not mind over matter. It's just get a better mind about reality. Amen? What would you feel like if, knowing all these things, if someone came up to you and cut you with a knife? You would feel grateful if it was a heart surgeon saving your life. Of course, anesthesiologist first, but you know what I mean. It's about perspective. As parents, we know that we have a different perspective entirely for our kids' ouchies, right? You know, like my my three-year-old, I'm not quite sure if it's an actual ouchie or if like her sister was hurting and so she had to make something up. But am I grieving over her ouchie in those moments? No, I'm really not. Is it because I relish her pain? Like, oh, you know, I just love to see her suffering. No, it's that I have, a, I have a bigger, different lens to see her suffering. In fact, I would say it's because I actually love her more than she's capable of loving herself. Apply that infinitely more to our Heavenly Father who has way better of a perspective on us than we have on our children. In fact, one more illustration. The Hope Diamond is worth about $250 million or something like that, like a quarter billion dollars. If the owner of the Hope Hope Diamond, uh, you just got to go with me on an extreme hypothetical here. I think American History Museum or something owns it. But let's say they came to you and said, we can relinquish the ownership of this to you. And all you have to do is punch your hand through this glass and take it. If you can do that, it's yours. Right? So... You punch your hand through the glass and cut your hand all up. It's a big mess. You think you need a tourniquet, right? But you have this diamond. It's yours. And now you're a quarter billion dollars richer. Would you go to your friend and your friend sees your bandages? And they say like, oh, what's wrong? Would you say, man, I'm having a bad day. I cut my hand. No. A quarter billion dollars can fix your hand, right? Now, this analogy seems way out there, but compared to the Hope Diamond, what the infinitely valuable Son of God did for us by being cut himself and cut to the point of death to give us a way more secure hope than a piece of rock or whatever that is, compared to that, which we know is sure, we can better uh, subject our suffering to that grid and that sight. He has given us a greater hope. Only through the lens of God's glory can we see all things rightly. And finally, my final question as we go through the last few verses is, what do I do when I don't see? What do I do when I don't see any of this? And here's what's beautiful about this. Verse 28 doesn't say that he works good for those who see how he's working. It says, He works good for those who love him. Do you love him? I came to know Jesus at 14 years old. In light of God's purity and joy, I saw my own impurity and grossness of my own sin in the lens of who he is and when, he, when I learned the next week in Bible study that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I can be forgiven of my sin. 
and my sins washed and I can experience new life. I, from that point on, had new life. I feel like I was actually just reading in my devotionals this morning about uh, John 11 and the, the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. I know what this woman feels like because I am her. I know what I've gone through in the past and how Jesus has forgiven me. And since that moment, almost 21 years ago, I've had this desire. Jesus forgave my sin, and now I want to live the rest of my life to like, and here's, what I, here's where I went, my thoughts went wrong. I want to live the rest of my life to like pay him back. You know, he, he gave me new life, but now it's all up to me to like do something good with it. Now, I know that there's some healthy understanding about stewardship, but let me tell you, that's bordering on deism, which is not the gospel. God starts, and he doesn't just leave you alone. He starts, and he's with you. He said, lo, I am with you even to the ends of the ages. He is with you, and he'll see through to completion what he begins. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. And if you're going through hard things, he is with you. Who can condemn you? No one. Who can stand against you? No one. And if we put the right lens on, it doesn't qualify us to allow God to walk with us. It just allows us to have rest and peace and fruitfulness. And a people that are assured that God is strong and he'll never leave me are a dangerous people to the enemy. When you don't have assurance like this, like I didn't have for about five years, All your energy goes to doubting yourself and and thinking it's faith. It's not faith. And sometimes the greatest peace comes not through how you see God working, but it comes through not seeing anything, but being able to trust and love in the one who sees. It's not always knowing why I'm going through what I'm going through. It's knowing the one who knows and knowing that he's smarter than me. And no thing can be used against me. 34 who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in All these things, or can be rendered all things such as these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Remember, we were unlovable. We were dead. He brings us life and makes us lovable. And we can love him back because he first loved us and he never stopped loving us. And no matter what we go through, nothing can cause his love to to not penetrate through that struggle to get to us. And so we can just be dangerous with our trust in God. We can bet our lives on it. That's what honestly what, what he says here in verse 38, for I am sure, I am persuaded. We can bet our lives that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor powers nor height nor depth is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When we have a trust like this, we become a risky sort of people that is dangerous to the enemy's work in the world. And so I'm about to apply this in a very careful way, but please hear what I'm saying. As we think about the struggles that we're going through now, 
and God shows us that there's something bigger than this, it should cause us to not, maybe the suffering doesn't go away, maybe it does. But it should cause us to think, what is God doing in the world through me? What is he doing in dark places through me? And it should make me, knowing that he's already defeated the worst of defeaters. The worst, what if the worst of your fears came true, right? You ever think like that? What if the worst of my fears? Well, he's already been through the worst for us. So let's, let's be fearsome. Let's do things that could get us killed. No, no, let's not try to, to, to be the, the people going out to try to get persecuted. Let's do the things that faithful people that are assured in God can risk and do to love others in a costly way that's appropriate to what Jesus did for us. Let's be a dangerous sort of people knowing that he is the one who forgives sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, and therefore I can live this life in the middle of good things, bad things, all things, with a reckless abandon that's appropriate. Now, what if you're here today and you've never seen any of these things? Maybe today is your first day where like, God's turning a light on you. Like, you're starting to see your life as it should be. What do you What do you do? My encouragement to you today as we go to confession and communion is to leave, leave everything at the altar. And you can pray. You can have new life today participating with what God's beginning right now with you by just saying, God, make me new. Forgive my sins. I release this all to you. Make me new. Make me dangerous against the enemy. Make me like you. Let me see and savor your glory. You can pray that. Would you stand to your feet with me?